It is an honor to be here. I am so glad to have this honor. Pastor Mike asked me to preach a few weeks ago when he got sick, but our boys were both sick, so I had to say no, and I was hoping that in the future I would be able to come and speak to you. So here I am. Praise the Lord. Um, recently, I actually uh, tore my Achilles tendon, so God's grace, I'm walking again. So if, if I stumble and fall, it's because my leg is swollen and, um, and I'm having problems. But I'm hoping the Lord will sustain me in the next two hours. Um, <laughs> just teasing. But as Pastor Michael said, is... Um, Um, I'm with Action, my wife and I are with Action International. We've been missionaries with Action International for 21 years. Um, We are blessed. Action International is a mission agency committed to sending out global workers, multinational workers through all regions. Our main uh, focus of people are those who are needy and poor. Um, We do three things. We do evangelism, development, and um, uh, development management. And discipleship, of course, that is our main focus. Um, my wife and I served in Cambodia for 16 years. We know the prax very well. In fact, we almost uh, moved out of Phnom Penh to go up to Benti and Mache to work with them. But, whoo, man, that's hard ministry work up there. I like living in the city. They like living in the province. I like electricity at least 12 hours a day. At least 12 hours a day. But my wife and I, we were blessed. We were sent at West Hills. Just a little bit about myself. I came to uh, Saving Faith under the preaching ministry of Pastor Mike Birchfield at West Hills Community Church. Back then it was called South Valley. Uh, My wife and I both came to know the Lord. Michael, Pastor Mike, discipled me, discipled my wife and I. And uh, really, every Sunday that he preached, he had a missions emphasis. Um, It was contagious. We were just like, wow. One day, maybe, and the Lord did send my wife and I out to Cambodia. Our main work in Cambodia for us as our team was to develop biblical resources, pastoral training. My wife is a nurse, and, um, and that's what we did. We ended up planting a church there, an English-speaking church for Cambodians who speak English. It became like the church in Phnom Penh, in a sense, so all the missionaries came. It is still there today. Our teammates, Darren and Jody Beck, are still serving in Cambodia we have a team of translators there, and we've translated great works. We've translated the fundamentals of the faith by uh, Dr. John MacArthur and his church. We've translated 50 Reasons Why Christ Came to Die. We've we translated uh, books like uh, What is a Healthy Church? What are the Nine Marks of a Healthy Church by Mark Devers? Several, several articles from Tim Kelly's. Um, just a lot of things. We recently just um, translated Confessions of Augustine. One of our Cambodians, one of our tra- translating, on our translating team, he went to the master's university and graduated in biblical languages. And the one book that really impacted him was the Confessions of Augustine. And he recently finished that, and it's printed now in the Khmer language. Pretty amazing. God is great. In the midst of all that, my wife and I took in nine Cambodian children. We, uh, we were registered with the government as an orphanage, but we were more of a family. And uh, we're blessed with our two boys, Boaz and Judah. We got them when they were babies. Um, Our other kids were older. We took in older kids in the beginning. And uh, I got to be honest, man, it was the hardest thing we ever did, but it was one of the greatest things we've ever did. 
You know, when you uh, take in kids who are 12, 13, 14, 17, who've lived in a country that's in darkness for so long, it's hard. It's really hard. So uh, we prayed and we said, okay, Lord, if we're going to continue to take in kids, we better take in younger kids. Kids that haven't, I always say, you know, that haven't really been caught up in all the darkness, all the voodoo, if you will. Um, so the Lord brought us two little boys. We thought about doing 12, but after the second, we were like, okay, this is hard. So we're blessed. So today I serve at, with Action. I'm the director of church partnerships. And what my job and position is now is I serve our missionaries. We have three, over 300 missionaries with Action in 30 countries. But from the United States, we have 155 missionaries that serve abroad. And my new position now is to come alongside them and their sending church to kind of like bridge that gap. You know, when your missionaries go away for so many years, you know, the first six months, you're in contact. The first year, you're still in contact. But after the second and third year, you lose contact. So my job is to come alongside them to talk to their home churches to keep that relationship kind of moving, um, especially when they start returning home for furlough or even if there's any issues on the mission field. I'm kind of like the guy they call to help. So it's been a, a challenging position, but it's been a blessing as well. But I'm also on staff at West Hills Community Church. I'm the missionary and uh, in residence. What that really means, Pastor Mike, is that I work for free at the church. And uh, they have me do everything. No, I'm just teasing. Um, but I work with the seniors there. I teach the children. And I lead worship every once in a while. And by the way, thank you for the worship. It was wonderful. It was a great worship time. So that's a little bit about us. Um, I want to talk about God's word. And... Um, I'm excited again to talk about it because your songs were songs of hope. Um, and that's what my hope is this morning, is to encourage you. I know sometimes when you get missionaries come up front, you know, they either ask for money or they put a guilt trip on you that you're not doing the work, right? That's what they do. Sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. I, I don't know, but that's what I felt before. My hope is to encourage you this morning. So... As a way of introduction, I would like to take you back to 1813. This was the year that David, David Livingston was born. He was born in Scotland. He belonged to a family of humble means, so at the age of 10, he began working in a cotton factory. He would work from 6 in the morning till 6 p.m., and then go to night school for two hours in the evening. 10 years old. That's amazing. But he would eventually graduate with a degree in medicine and theology from the University of Glasgow. One day, while he was in Glasgow, he heard a missionary from Africa named Robert Moffat. Robert Moffat preached for about an hour and a half. And uh, David Livingston said that he spoke for an hour and a half, but it was 20 words that really captivated him. It was 20 words in his message, and these were the 20 words. And Robert Moffat said, I had sometimes seen in the morning sun the smoke of a thousand villages where no missionary has ever been. I have sometimes seen in the morning sun the smoke of a thousand villages that no missionary has ever seen. These words captivated David Livingston's entire being. It fired up his soul with the passion that only death could quench, and he would go to Africa. 
But first, he would join the London Missionary Society for missionary training. And at his own request, in 1841, he would go to Africa for 30 years. He would travel the southern part of the continent and lead such an adventurous life that he became, David Livingston, a true legend. In fact, National Geographic to this day says that he was a legendary great explorer. But he was much more than that. He was much more than a great adventurer. Historians have said that he was the most famous missionary at that time. But David would always say, I'm an explorer, I'm an adventurer, but I am a missionary first. That is my calling. That is my honor. And although he was famous back at home and he was famous around the world, David Livingston was one of the most loneliest men to ever live. He was probably one of the loneliest missionaries of all time. This man was totally isolated in the middle of an unexplored continent without hearing a familiar voice, without seeing a familiar face for years and years at a time. It is said in his journal that there was one time span that he never saw another person, a white person that is, for five years. He would meet his wife on the mission field. In fact, he would marry Robert Moffat's daughter, Mary. But he met Mary because during his time, in his early years, he was attacked by a lion. And the lion had basically destroyed his left arm. It splintered his humerus, and his arm never worked well again. So he needed help. So he ended up finding this missionary and his family, and his daughter nursed him back to health. And his wife, Mary, who became his wife in 1845, she of herself was a pretty amazing lady. God had given her the gift of languages, and she spoke eight different languages. She was more popular than David Livingston in the beginning. In fact, when they would introduce her to people, or him to people, he would say, oh, this is the husband of Mary Moffat. Pretty amazing. But Mary would often get sick on the mission field. They would travel together, and Mary would get sick all the time. In fact, on one trip, as they were crossing the desert, Mary and their three children, with David and their caravan, got stuck in the, in the sand. They ran out of water and food for three days. Her kids were sick. She was sick. David Livingston saw his family and thought, oh, my gosh, what am I doing? So they turned back, and they went back down to Cape Town. And on the way home, one of their children would die. So David, knowing that, man, this is cruel. What am I doing? He sent his wife and his two other kids back to England while he continued alone on the mission field. She, when she got on the boat, was pregnant. And it would be four years before David Livingston heard that his baby had been born. He would wait week after week for letters from Mary, but they would seldom come. They either got lost or never, ever delivered. He had family thousands of miles away, but yet he knew nothing of his family. We served in Cambodia a thousand miles away, but we had phones. We have a mail system. We have airplanes. This man had no plane, no car, no phone, nothing 
I am so blessed. We can actually talk to my folks on a video live. He had none of this. He was certainly so lonely. But that being said, Livingston continued to do the work of a missionary relentlessly until his death on May 1st in 1872, two months after his 60th birthday. So if you have your Bibles open, please turn with me to Matthew chapter 28. Matthew chapter 28. This is a familiar passage, Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 and 20. It's called the great comfort of the great commission. In fact, when David Livingston was asked, what sustained you all of these years on the mission field? What sustained you for all these years? And this is what he said. He said, you would like to know what supported me through all the years of exile among the people whose attitude towards me was always uncertain, always hostile? David said, it was this. It were these words. Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. On those words, David said, I staked everything, and they never failed. I was never left alone. It is said that when David Livingston's dead body was found by his African helpers, he was found kneeling in prayer by his cot. His Bible was open, and it was open to this very verse, this very text that we're going to read, Matthew 28, verse 20. His Bible was open to this very text, and in his Bible, in the margin, he had written the words of a gentleman. The words of a gentleman implying that Jesus' honor was at stake if he does not keep his word, that I am with you always, even to the end of the age. David Livingston would literally stake his future upon those words, and for over 30 years, he held on to the truth of the Great Commission that was guaranteed by the Great Comforter. I am with you always, So brothers and sisters, this morning, ultimately, the mission of the church belongs to our Heavenly Father, belongs to Christ, His Son. He is the architect, and He is the one building His church. And because of His comforting presence is with us, it is with us always, every single day of our lives. So in the next few minutes, I want to look at this passage. I want to read it and pray. So before I go any further, I'm going to read this text, and then I'm going to pray. Matthew 28. I'm going to start in 18 in the middle there. And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, 
and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for this opportunity to open up your word, to study it. Lord, we know that there are Christians all around the world today who are being persecuted for your name's sake. But Lord, we have the opportunity to open your word freely without fear that the authorities are going to come in here and arrest us and take us away. So Lord, so we lift up your church. We lift up our brothers and sisters who are in chains, who are being persecuted for your sake. Lord, our hope is that they know that you are with them always. And Lord, we want you, Lord. We want to learn from you. Lord, we know that transformation comes from the renewing of our minds. And Lord, I'm so thankful for today for the worship, Lord, for truly your amazing grace is it's amazing, Lord. And we ask that you be our vision, Lord. For Lord, great are you, Lord. And we thank you, Lord, for the cross. We thank you for saving us. And this morning, Lord, my hope is to elevate your name. Lord, that's what we want to do this morning. So please be with us. Be with me as I speak. Help me to speak clearly. Help me to, Lord, Lord to honor you in all that I say. Lord, pray that you'll give us the capacity to understand your word and be transformed into Christ-likeness evermore. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I have two points this morning if you're taking notes. And the first point is this. The assurance of his comforting presence. The assurance of his comforting presence in Matthew 28, 20. In the Old Testament, it was very common for God to comfort his people with his presence. We see that in the book of Joshua. Moses dies, I will be with you, right? In verse 1, 5. It says that God will be with, with, with Joshua. It's also, we find that in Judges. But perhaps the most clearest example is found in Exodus chapter 3. Exodus chapter 3. We see that God comforts his people with his presence. Exodus chapter 3. It says this in the text, verse 1. It says that Moses is keeping the flock of his father-in-law when suddenly the angel of the Lord appears to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of the bush. And verse 4 reads, When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see... He called out to him and said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place which you are standing is holy ground. Verse 6 of Exodus says that Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. And it's remarkable to note the reason why Moses humbles himself before God is because the angel of the Lord identifies himself as the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. That is to say, this is no new God. This is no new God. This is the same God who promised to be with the forefathers before. 
He had promised to be with Abraham in Genesis 17. He promised to be with Isaac in Genesis 26. And he promised to be with Jacob in Genesis 28. In other words, God has not forgotten his promise. And that's what he's telling Moses. That his comforting presence was essential to guarantee the fulfillment of the covenant that he made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So for that very reason, when Moses questions his ability to go to Pharaoh to bring the children out of Egypt, God reminds him of this truth. Verse 12. Verse 12. God reminds him, I will be with you. I will be with you, God says. When he stumbles, when he questions his ability, God reminds him of this truth. I will be with you. In other words, the source of Moses' sufficiency to carry out the task was made evident by God's name. What is God's name? I love this, I love this chapter in the Bible. God's name, verse 4. I am who I am. I am who I am. That's what God says. And the idea here is that the same comforting presence, the promise that was promised to the forefathers, would now be with Moses. Why? Because verse 15 says that God reminds us that his name never changes. This is my name forever, God says. Thus, it is a name that to be remembered throughout all generations. In other words, his presence, God's presence, is as certain as his name is. His name never changes. God's name is forever. I am who I am. I am who I am. And I'll be right with you. So he would be with Moses as he was with Abraham, as he was with Isaac, and as he was with Jacob. That's the idea. And this is, this is worth noting because it means that God's eternal, God's unchanging name in and of itself, the promise of his comforting presence is I am who I am, meaning I will be right next to you. So when we go back to Matthew 28, when we take this back to the New Testament, Jesus in Matthew 28 is promising that his continuing presence to his disciples to fulfill the Great Commission. Why? Because Jesus shares the same name as God. He shares the same name as God. Jesus does. Look at, he literally says in verse 20, look at verse 20 in Matthew 28. I am, I am with you. This is literally the same expression that God used in Exodus 3 to encourage Moses in the face of this daunting task to rescue his people out of Egypt. And the point is this in Matthew 28. The point is that the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, and the God of Moses is with us always, always. And this helps explain why in Matthew, in the beginning of Matthew, Matthew chapter 1, verse 23, that Jesus is called what? Emmanuel, God with us. 
in fulfillment of the prophecy to Isaiah. And Matthew is reminding us that Jesus shares the same name as God. His comforting presence is all we need to fulfill this daunting task of making disciples of all nations. I want to show you in another place, Matthew 14. Matthew chapter 14. Jesus uses the same expression in Matthew 14 to comfort his disciples. Matthew 14, verse 22. Matthew 14, verse 22. Immediately, he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had dismissed the crowd, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. But the boat by this time was a long way from land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. But when his disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately, Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. The idea here that the disciples had seen a ghost filled them with fear. Now, I don't know about you. I don't, I've never seen a ghost. But if I was on a boat, I don't care if I was in the sea or a lake or the ocean, and if I saw someone walking on the water, I would be freaked out and thinking, my gosh, it must be a ghost. Who knows? But I do know that the text says here that they were truly terrified. They were terrified. These disciples were terrified. But look in verse 27. Let's look at the care of Jesus. I love this. Verse 27 says, first they were terrified. But it says, immediately. Look at the care of Jesus. Immediately he says to them, take courage, it is I. Take courage, it is I. We can actually translate to as I am, do not be afraid. Take courage, I am, do not be afraid. What is Jesus doing here? He's immediately reminding him of his name. He is immediately reminding him of who he is. The disciples were no longer to fear because Christ shares the same name with God. Therefore, God's comforting presence was with them in that very boat immediately. So this assurance of his comforting presence, this is a certainty as Jesus comforts us, that his name never changes. He stays true to who he is always. Jesus is today as he was yesterday, as he will be tomorrow. Therefore, we will never find ourselves alone or in a place where Christ cannot find us. There is no jungle, there is no cave, there is no ocean that Jesus cannot find us because he is with us always. 
No matter the strength of the wind, no matter the magnitude of the waves crashing all around us, God's presence is with us all times, continually, with no interruptions. God is with us always, and that is amazing, especially as we go through the storms of this life, tossed to and fro, struggling. Jesus says, God's word says, I'm with you, even in the midst of that. And so quickly do we forget even in this story, when Jesus comes onto the boat, or he tells the mother, he says, I am with you, right? Peter says, Lord, can I walk on the water too? And Peter, and Lord says, yes, and Peter walks on the water. But he looks off from the Lord, and he sees the wind, and he freaks out, and he starts to sink, and he cries out, oh, my goodness. We do that all the time. We always lose our focus on Christ. But this morning, my hope is that we remember that Christ is with us always, even in the worst storms. Remember this, brother, he, brothers and sisters, he's with us always. He's with, he's with us on days of light and in days of darkness, on days of conflict and on ga- days of victory, on days of plenty and on days of lacking, on days of strength and every day in our weakness, he is right next to us because his name never changes. God with us will never fail us. He will never forsake us as he never forsook Abraham, nor he forsook Isaac, Jacob, or Moses. As Exodus 15 says, his name is forever. So his comforting presence is forever. So regardless of our efforts, the great comfort, his great comfort, is certain as his name is, which is forever. His name never changes. And we can rest assured in this truth whenever or wherever or whatever our circumstance may be this morning, God, remember this, is there with us also. He's there with us also because his name never changes. So that's point one, the assurance of his comforting presence. Now let's look at point two. Not only do we see the assurance of his comforting presence, and that comfort is embedded in who he is in the name of Jesus, but I want to look at the consummation of his comforting presence, the consummation of his comforting presence the realization, the culmination. So we need to go back to Matthew 28. Matthew 28. Let's go back there. And here we'll see the consummation of his comforting presence. 28 says this. Verse 19. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And lo, I am with you always. Now look at the last phrase. Lo, I'm with you always. What? To the end of the age. In other words, God's comforting presence will last to the end of the age. 
Now, the emphasis here, we need to understand, is not on the end, and the emphasis here is not on the conclusion of this particular stage of history, redemptive history, but the emphasis here is on the consummation of the process, the process that God is carrying out through his disciples, together joining his disciples in the work throughout the world. In other words, God is with us as he's building his church. You see, there's never been a day, there never will be a day in this process as Christ builds his church in which Christ is not involved in the Great Commission. It is his, and there is this joining together between us and God. He is the one building up his church through his people, through us. So our mission, the Great Commission, is truly, ultimately, God's. It belongs to him, and his comforting presence is the source of our daily sufficiency in order to fulfill this daunting task. This daunting task of what? Of making disciples of all nations. It almost seems impossible. Are you kidding me? Make disciples of all nations? I can't even make disciples of my own unbelieving family. My neighbors, our neighborhoods, our cities, our states, our country. But Jesus says, make disciples of all nations. That seems incredible. How in the world are we to do that? This is incredible. Well, but here's the good news. Jesus says, you aren't doing that. We're doing this together. This process of building the church, making disciples, belongs to God. He builds his church. He does it. with the comfort of Christ with us, right? But also, along with this consummation, also comes this consummation of history, of the stage in history. See, also along with that, us joining together, there's another consummation of this stage of redemptive history because there is a destiny. We're going somewhere. There's movement in what, the, what Jesus is saying here. There is some direction or directionality in history. We are moving somewhere. God is doing something. He's unfolding his will, and there will be this major consummation. And it's made clear in Matthew chapter 24. So turn with me to Matthew chapter 24. I think if we understand Matthew 24 a little bit better, we can understand what Jesus is saying in Matthew 28. Matthew 24, verse 1, says, Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the building of the temples the buildings of the temple, but he answered them, you see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Verse three, this is the main point. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things be? 
And what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? What will be the sign of the end of the age? This is the same phrase that appears at the end of the Great Commission in Matthew 28, the end of the age. But here in this context, the disciples are making a series of questions to Jesus concerning his establishment of the kingdom. When are you going to build your kingdom? Is it now? Is it happening now? But if we go back to chapter 23, which is the chapter right before 24, we read in verse 37, this is what Jesus says. O Jerusalem, O Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings? But you are not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then it says in chapter 24, verse 1, and then Jesus left the temple. See, they were asking questions about his establishment of his kingdom and the destruction of Jerusalem. And we don't have to go there, but in Luke chapter 19, there's a parallel passage. And in Luke's gospel, they were convinced, the disciples were convinced that Jesus was going to establish his kingdom right then, right then and there. That was the next thing that was going to happen in in their line and their story. They believed in Luke's gospel that that was the very next thing, and they were convinced that right now Jesus is going to establish his kingdom But we see in 24, no, not yet. In verse 3, they say to him, Lord, tell us when these things will be. What will be the sign of your coming at the end of the age? And again, this is the same phrase that we find in Matthew 28. But in Matthew's context in 24, it connects explicitly to Jesus' second coming. In fact, know this. Every single time Matthew talks about the end of the age, it has to do with Jesus' second coming. He uses it this way in Matthew 39. In Matthew, I'm sorry, 13.39, Matthew 13.40, and I think, believe, Matthew 13.49, Matthew uses this word, this phrase, in the context of Jesus' second coming. This is the eschatological um, a context of the Great Commission. This is the end times here. And the consummation of Jesus' comfort is the second coming. So, the day is coming, brothers and sisters, when Jesus will return in bodily form to judge the world. He will rule his earthly kingdom. But there's a series of events that must take place, and that's what Matthew's saying in, verse 24, in chapter 24, verses 4 through 28. That's what's going to happen. There's a bunch of stuff that has to be fulfilled first. But look in verse 29. He says that after these things take place, immediately after the tribulation of those days, verse 30, Christ will appear in the sky, he says, with great power and great glory. 
So immediately after these events, he will appear in the sky with great power and great glory. And just as the great tribulation will be without parallel, the manifestation of the Son of Man coming on clouds in the sky will be like nothing else we have ever experienced or ever seen. You see, the resurrected one, Jesus, will come in full divine majesty. When he comes, he will come in full divine splendor. And all the tribes, it says in verse 30, all the tribes will mourn because they have rejected God and his son. Now I want you to note that Christ's second coming will be visible. Be visible. Every eye will see him according to Revelation 1.7. Every eye will see him because he will come just as the same way that he went up into heaven. In other words, Christ's second coming will be bodily. Christ will appear physically and tangibly just as he did in his first coming. In his first coming, he came as a baby, born to a virgin. But he was flesh and blood. Talk about humble means. He was born in a manger, wrapped in swaddling clothes at his first coming. At his second coming, He's coming very different, brothers and sisters. He's coming with eyes of fire, with a robe dipped in blood, with his name saying, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And he's coming with great power and great glory and great splendor. Now, all of this to say it's important for us to know that as we read Matthew 28 and understanding his great commission. Why? Well, this means that God's comforting presence will be different on that day. When Jesus comes back, his comforting presence will be different. For us, joy, gladness, like, hallelujah, thank you, Jesus. For those who don't believe, judgment. You may hear the words, away, I never knew you. Because, see, God today is with us spiritually. That's what his word says. It says that Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father, in Acts 3, 21. He is sitting there until this period of restoration of all things. God is restoring things all to himself. He's calling people to himself. And he's with us. So right now, God is with us spiritually. But the thing is, in Matthew's gospel, he doesn't tell us who this comfort is. What is this comfort? He doesn't provide the detail of Jesus' comforting presence. He just says that I am with you. So we have to find that in Luke chapter 24. If you go to the end of Luke's gospel, we see what this comforting presence really is. So if you go with me to Luke chapter 24, the parallel passage to Matthew 20, 
8, we see something here. Twenty-four, verses thirty-six through thirty-nine. In thirty-six, Jesus appears to his disciples and says, "Peace to you." Then, in verse forty-four, Jesus says, "These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled." Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. Now listen to verse 49. Behold, I am sending you, sending you what? The promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you're clothed with power from on high. In Matthew's account, he doesn't provide the details of how Jesus is comforting us today. But in Luke's promise, in Luke's gospel, he does provide the promise. The promise of what? The promise of who? The promise of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. You see, God sent another person in the same essence as Jesus to us to take his place on earth that every day that we are aware of his comforting presence while we commit and do the Great Commission. Acts 2.33 says this. It talks about Jesus' absence here. It says in Acts 2.33, Therefore, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, that is Christ, that is where he is, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, that is who is, that, that is, who is with us today, has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. All to say, brothers and sisters, so the Holy Spirit is the perfect substitute for Christ. And his comforting presence is not just with us, it's in us. He not just dwells with us. John 14, 17 says that his comforting presence is in each of us always. Clothing us with power from on high to carry out, to fulfill the great commission the great commission of making disciples of all nations, and that including your dad and your mother and your brother and your sister and your daughters and sons and your neighbors. He's with us because he's in us. So this great comfort of the Holy Spirit dwelling in us is, dwelling in us is a reality it's reality until, until when? When Jesus returns in bodily form, when Jesus comes back in power and in great, in great glory, until that day, the Holy Spirit is with us, comforting us. But on this day, 
when Jesus comes back in bodily form with great power, his spiritual presence will be so amazing. It will be intensified, but not only his spiritual presence, but it'll be intensified because of his physical presence, a tangible presence. As 1 John 3, 2 says, that we will finally see him as he is. And the spiritual presence on that day will be amazing. It's going to cause us to just fall to worship. And we're looking forward to that day, aren't we? I'm looking forward to that day, that blessed day. 1 John 3, 2 is called the beatific vision. The beatific vision, that's what they call it in theological circles. It's because that's where we're going to see our Savior. And all our affections, all our desires will be focused on him and him alone. No longer the cares of this world, our bodies that are falling apart, all our focus and affection will be on him and him alone. And we're all looking forward to that wonderful, blessed day, aren't we? And we're moving there. And we'll be consumed with his presence, his everlasting presence, because his name never changes. Jonathan Edwards, the great theologian, says this about this day, about this beatific vision of seeing Christ. He says this, as much as we long for that coming first instance, as much as we long for that, it will not be momentary or static, but it will be eternal and dynamic, ever increasing, ever progressing, ever clearer, ever deeper, more than simply our physical scene of Jesus, this beatific vision begins in our being seen, in us being seen, and being transformed, somehow becoming, while ever creatures, partakers of his divine nature. God, God's rescue of his people, rich in mercy and great in love, the means, that means that in the coming ages, he will show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards all of us in Christ Jesus. The infinite God will never be done showing us his immeasurable riches of his grace or the full vista of himself coming to us in his love and not wrath. Our sight of God in Christ will be both immediate and continue to ripen forever. It will never become static. It will never become boring. And after we've had the pleasure of beholding his face of God for a million ages, it will never grow a dull story. The relish of his delight, of his, the relish of his delight will be as exquisite as ever. We will indeed see God and we will see Jesus, and it will not end there. The great sight that makes happy will continue to do so and evermore for all eternity. Come, Lord Jesus, amen.
Come, Lord Jesus. Napoleon Bonaparte once said that the word impossible is not in his vocabulary. However, on June 18th in 1815, <laughs> three years after David Livingston was born, the French army was defeated at the Battle of Waterloo. And the British would banish Napoleon to the island of St. Helena, where he would die. So, it was possible to defeat him. However, I would argue this morning that the word impossible should not be in the Christian vocabulary. Why? Because the Great Commission is already guaranteed by our great comforter. We can do this, brothers and sisters. We can make disciples of all nations. We can. With this great comfort, with this great promise, the great I am, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Christ says that he will build his church and not even the gates of hell will overtake it. Our mission is truly his because God is with us always. We are just instruments. We are just instruments in making disciples of all nations. We are being used by the hands of God. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, and the God of Moses. So my encouragement to you this morning that the building up the church is a certainty because of Jesus' comforting presence. It's a reality. We know he's in us because the spirit of God bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And there is no uncertainty about this assurance because God's name never changes. I am who I am. Jesus is the great I am. And he will certainly draw to himself a people from every tongue, every tribe, every nation to the praise of his glory. And we must press on. We must press on. With this comfort, we must press on. With this promise, we must keep going. We need to press on to fulfill the Great Commission why? Because Jesus is a true gentleman. And he always keeps his word. He will never fail us. He'll never leave us. Nor will he ever forsake us. For he says, for lo, I am with you always. Even to the end of the age. Let's pray. Lord, we are reminded this morning of your great comforting presence, how you're with us, each of us, by the Spirit. Father, we look at a text like this this morning, and Lord, we are so encouraged that we can fulfill this daunting task before us with joyful obedience. Lord, how awesome, awesome it would be to fulfill your will and Lord, we know at times we hesitate like the disciples do. 
Father, help us to remember of your comforting, of this comforting truth that your name never changes, that you're always with us, that you're in us through the Holy Spirit, and that we are capable of doing this for your glory. Lord, we want to be people known of the book. But Lord, we want to be transformed and be doers of your word, not just hearers. Lord, help us. Help Grace Church, Bible Church, Lord, to preach the gospel. Make disciples with boldness. Help us, Lord. Bless us with baptizing people, teaching them, discipling them, preparing them, equipping them to do the work of the ministry so that in the end, people from every tongue, tribe, and nation will render to you the honor that you and you only deserve. Lord, we want to be obedient to your word. Lord, transform our understanding. We pray all these things in Jesus' name.